Verse 49 says, And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. So that's good news. Even in the midst of the troubles that were going on here, God was still spreading his word throughout the region. It says in verse 50, while this is taking place, people are learning there's good news. People are all excited about this gospel. Nevertheless, there were people who weren't excited about the gospel. Verse 50 says, But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city. And we know that this is clearly talking about the magistrates by the Greek that is used here. And isn't this interesting? You know, the feminists would have us believe that all women were oppressed forever till they came on the scene, you know, 150 years ago, and then with their new brand of feminism 60 years ago. They would all have us believe that women were these poor, oppressed objects. And if you believe that, you're an ignorant fool who doesn't study history. Because the truth of the matter, there's the, that is not the case. And here we see what? What do we see here? Devout and prominent women <laughs> and the chief men of the city. So these are clearly the wives of the magistrates, the wives of the movers and shakers in town who don't like this gospel message. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city. And this has been the case when we continue on here in the book of Acts, you see it again and again, where the Jews would come to the magistrates and use the authority of the magistrates to suppress the truth of the gospel. This, this is one of those instances here. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from the region. So the Jews go to the magistrates, these people are troublemakers, and they get them expelled from the city. And how does Paul respond and Barnabas respond? Verse 51, But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So they shook off the dust from their feet against them. This is what we call imprecation. And I want to teach you what imprecation is this morning for those of you who don't know. Because imprecation is something that is found in the Word of God, is seen in the Old and New Testaments, is taught by Christ himself and the disciples, apostles. And I want to begin by giving you a little history. In the second century, there was a churchman named Marcion. And Marcion was the son of a bishop. And he arrived in Rome in 140 A.D. and was trained in the faith by a man named Serdo, C-E-R-D-O. And Serdo was a Gnostic. If you know anything about Gnosticism, it makes a dichotomy between the so-called spiritual and the physical. Spiritual is good. Anything physical is evil. Gnosticism was condemned by early Christianity as a heresy, and rightly so. While reading the scriptures, Marcion came to the conclusion that the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. He viewed the Old Testament God as a God of justice and judgment, and the New Testament God as a God of love and mercy. Marcion rejected the God of the Old Testament and embraced what he viewed as the God of the New Testament. Therefore, 
Marcion wiped out the entire Old Testament from Holy Scripture and much of the New Testament he removed also. He only viewed ten epistles by Paul to be legitimate, to be authoritative. And as I mentioned, he was soundly condemned as a heretic by all of the other churchmen of his day. They wrote about his teachings. The sad thing about Marcion in our day is that many in modern-day 21st century Christianity view things quite similar to Marcion. They, too, have made this huge dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, and that is heresy. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? The Scriptures teach that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is not the great peacenik in the sky that Marcion and 21st century Christianity want to make him into, nor is he the ogre they perceive him to be in the Old Testament. The Old Testament does reveal God to be a God of justice and judgment, as Marcion asserted, but it also reveals him to be a God of love and mercy. And yes, the New Testament does reveal God to be a God of love and mercy, as Marcion asserted, but it also reveals him to be a God of justice and judgment. He did not change his personality from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He did not change his nature from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Consider the Old Testament. God is not just a God of justice and judgment. For example, Jonah. Justice and judgment was coming. But when the people repented, God did what? He had mercy. When you look at Jonah's preaching, there wasn't an even, if you do this, then this will happen. It was judgment is coming. They put on sackcloth and ashes and repented, and God showed mercy to them. Also, the children of Israel, we see the Lord's mercy extended to them again and again, do we not? Over and over, he shows his long-suffering and his mercy towards them and their continued rebellions against him. Psalm 136, every single verse ends with the phrase, for his mercy endures forever. Psalm 136, every verse ends with that phrase, for his mercy endures forever. If you look at Leviticus chapter 4, verse 20, verse 26, verse 31, and verse 35, and you look at Leviticus chapter 5, the very next chapter, verses 10, 13, 16, and 18, all of those verses speak of God's forgiveness. Just in these two chapters, in that one book, He is not just a God of justice and judgment. He is also a God of love and mercy in both Testaments. Look at Exodus chapter 23. Turn there and let's look at verses 4 and 5. The book of Exodus chapter 23. And we'll read just verses 4 and 5. This whole idea that loving our enemies is a New Testament idea is not true. 
When Jesus taught us to love our enemies, he was just teaching what the law of God already had made clear. When you look at Exodus 23, right where God's law is all being laid out, it says in verse 4, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. Loving our enemies is an Old Testament idea. (laughs) Jesus was reiterating it in his Sermon on the Mount when he declared we are to love our enemies. There is not this huge dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. He is the same God. He's always had all these attributes, justice, judgment, love, and mercy. So not just justice and judgment in the Old Testament, but also love and mercy. And there's many more proofs I could share, but time doesn't allow us to do so. And consider the New Testament. It does reveal God to be a God of love and mercy, but it also reveals him to be a God of justice and judgment in the New Testament. Even in the book we're in right now, the book of Acts. Remember chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira? This is justice and judgment. They fell over dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. And this is wholly other than what American Christians perceive the God of the Bible to be. Remember I talked about how they glaze over the story of Ananias and Sapphira in modern-day commentaries and in the writings of Christian people, you like never see that story. Why? Because they want to create in the minds of men this idea that God is a God of love and mercy, period. That he no longer has this attribute of justice and judgment. Remember Acts chapter 12? Herod eaten with worms? God's judgment upon him. God is not the great peacenik. He is not the cosmic Mr. Rogers who comes down with his cardigan sweater on and gently declares, oh, won't you be my neighbor? He is also a God of justice and judgment. Jesus himself spoke of hell and judgment repeatedly. Just grab your Strong's Concordance and look for yourself. Hell and judgment have to do with justice and judgment. The New Testament writers also often spoke of such things. When you actually read the Old Testament and New Testament, which we know most Americans don't read their Bibles, every study that's been done proves that abundantly clear, there's pathetically little Bible reading going on amongst Christian men and women in America. But when you actually read the Old Testament New Testament, you see there is no dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Both speak to all these four attributes. Justice, judgment, love, mercy. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. Look what the Apostle Paul pens. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22 says, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. 
let him be accursed. Accursed or anathema means what? Cursed. That's what it means. The theological term used is imprecation. And that's what I'm teaching you about here this morning. Imprecation. To imprecate is to invoke God's righteous judgment, whether on a person, a people, or a nation. And that is what Paul does here. He imprecates all those who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to me now. This is not an unchristian thing to do, nor is it merely an Old Testament phenomenon, this matter of imprecation. It is not an unchristian thing to do, nor is it merely an Old Testament phenomenon, as modern-day American Christianity would like you to believe. The reason most Christians today recoil at imprecation is because they have been schooled in unbiblical thought. They have been influenced by universal thought, that God is a God of love only. That God is a God of love, period. And they have embraced this false God, the God of love, period. Yet the Bible speaks of imprecation both in the Old Testament and the New Testament over and over again. He is not just a God of love, period, but he's also a God of justice and judgment. Imprecation is a normal part of New Testament Christianity. Imprecation is a normal part of New Testament Christianity, yet most in American Christianity today find it, oh, that's abhorrent, that's not biblical. It's abhorrent. What's abhorrent is the form of Christianity that's prevalent in American Christianity. That's what's abhorrent. In the name of love, false love, they can accommodate themselves to any evil. And they can help this culture and men accommodate themselves to any evil and justify any evil they imbibe upon. All in the name of love. You know how many churches will never speak against the idols of our nation, against the evils of our nation? Because they love their social club and they love gathering people in week after week and building a nice stone structure. Real estate. Men will whore themselves out for real estate at the drop of a hat. Something about buildings. They love their buildings. I read about Christians of old who met in catacombs. Christians of old who met in literal chicken coops, you know, in some countries where they have to meet out in swamps. And the whores that make up American Christianity, they they love their buildings. Oh, they'll spend tons of money on their buildings to be fed what they want to hear so that it accommodates and affirms their American lifestyle. Imprecation is a normal part of New Testament Christianity. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, and look what the Apostle Paul says there. We've already looked at 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Look what he says here. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, the different gospel being that Jesus isn't good enough, you need Jesus, plus you got to be circumcised. 
He goes on in verse 7 and says, Which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And look what he goes on to say. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. He imprecates those who teach a false gospel. Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what you have received, let him be accursed. He's emphatic. He says it twice. This is imprecation in the New Testament. Imprecation was a normal part of Christianity in the early church. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. He says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and good and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is imprecation. Calling upon God's judgment upon men for their evil against Him. Jesus Himself was involved in imprecation. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, verse 11. The Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 10, starting in verse 11. Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and stay there till you go out. And when you go out into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you, nor hear your words... When you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And that is exactly what has happened in our text here in Acts chapter 13. The apostles Paul and Barnabas are thrown out and they shake the dust off their feet. What are they doing? Imprecating. It is the imprecation, calling upon God's judgment. And understand, it's not called upon just because, oh, they didn't treat us right. That is the best thing that can happen to a people that are in rebellion to God, is for His judgment to come upon them. Because then hopefully in the midst of that, they will see their need for Him and for His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you understand? It is a goodness. It's not vindictive for vindictivity's sake. It plays a vital, important role in converting men to Christ, in rectifying evil in a land, in removing unjust and wicked magistrates, and on and on. Look at Mark chapter 9, verse 42. The next gospel, 
Mark chapter 9, verse 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, look what it says. Look what Jesus says. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. He is imprecating. This is imprecation. Jesus himself spoke of imprecation, participated in imprecation, and taught his disciples to imprecate. Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 22. Look what it says there. Matthew 11, 20 through 22. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. This is imprecation, calling upon God's righteous judgment upon an evil and wicked people. Upon an evil and wicked people. Jesus in Matthew 23, his famous seven woes. You can read that, just mark it down in your notes. It's all imprecation. So the apostles participated in imprecation. Imprecation seen throughout the Old Testament, seen throughout the New Testament. Jesus himself involved himself with imprecation. And God the Father himself imprecates. Remember the serpent way back in Genesis chapter 3? He was imprecated, wasn't he? He had to now crawl on his belly to get around. Remember Genesis chapter 4, verse 11, after Cain slew his brother Abel, he was imprecated, wasn't he? Had a mark put on his head. And things weren't going well for his little agricultural pursuits any longer. Deuteronomy 27, let's turn there, verses 14 through 26. The book of the law, Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 14 through 26. God himself imprecates. It says, And the Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination of the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Verse 16, Cursed is the one who treats his father or his mother with contempt, and all the people shall say, Amen. And as you go through verse by verse, it's an imprecation. Cursed be this one for this, cursed be that one for that, all the way up to verse 26, which says, Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. God himself imprecates, and Paul actually quotes this verse 
Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26 in the New Testament, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. And declares that all those not submitted to his covenant, God's covenant, are cursed. They are under his righteous judgment. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Jesus speaking, he says, Depart from me, you cursed. In the parable there, in the story there. Why cursed? Because they are. <laughs> because they are. If you're outside the covenant of God, found in Christ Jesus only, you are cursed. You are under his righteous judgment. Imprecation is part of God's economy from Genesis to Revelation. We are to imprecate. The apostles did it. Jesus himself did it. God himself, the Father, did it. And David did it. Have you ever read the book of Psalms? It is the only prayer book in the whole Bible. And the book of Psalms is loaded with what we call imprecatory psalms. Psalms where the psalmist teaches how to pray, to imprecate, to call upon God's righteous judgment upon wicked men or rulers. And they're seen over and over again in the book of Psalms. Many today spiritualize them and say those prayers only apply to demons in our day. Horse feathers. That is not true. That's a man-made assertion. There is nothing to warrant such an interpretation except it helps them puff up their false god of love, period. These psalms, these prayers are speaking of real flesh and blood people because God has always had real flesh and blood enemies, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. When you read these psalms, you see things about arms being broken, teeth being knocked out, wicked men being removed from office, their wives becoming widows, and their children orphans. These are imprecatory psalms or prayers. We are to pray them. It is a tool given in the hands of Christians commissioned by Christ himself to imprecate. And the false Christianity of today has taken this tool and put it on a shelf while they take this whole culture and nation into hell with them. Because they've created a God other than the God of the Bible, the God of love and mercy only. God has always had flesh and blood enemies, and he still does in New Testament times. And even you and I were his enemies before we came to know Christ. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. The epistle of Paul, Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. It says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled. Look what he says of us in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. The book of Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, actually having 
repented and believed, we shall be saved by his life. God has real flesh and blood enemies in the earth. Look at James chapter 4, the epistle of James chapter 4. And look at verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. God has real flesh and blood enemies. And there are times where they are so wicked, so diabolical, so evil in their intentions, that the saints of God need to pray for their removal, for his righteous judgment to be upon their heads. Look at Psalm chapter 10, verses 12 through 15. The book of Psalm, chapter 10. We're going to run through just some of these psalms very quickly here. Psalm 10, 12 through 15. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you shall not require an account. But you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. Amen? We pray for men that their evil ceases either by the cross or by the sword. The declaration of the gospel points men to Christ. The righteous judgment of him upon a man also points men to Christ. Understand that. The Holy Spirit came to convict men of sin, righteousness, and what? Judgment. Amen? And the church has taken that completely off the shelf. Judgment, oh, we don't want to talk. That's not positive. We ain't going to talk about that. Righteousness, they don't want to talk. Sin, they can barely bring themselves to talk of that anymore. Barely. You have to press them. They're not going to tell the sinner that. You have to press them to admit it's that men's sin. That's how bizarre it's become. Psalm 94, look at that, verses 1 through 3. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? Render punishment to the proud. When's the last time you heard the Lord addressed as, as this addresses him. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs. Oh, we shouldn't pray that. Yes, we should. There's times it needs to be prayed. Psalm 109, mark that down in your notes, is one long imprecation. (laughs) You can read it at your own leisure. Christians today have no hatred for evil, so they hate these psalms. 
These imprecatory psalms are hated by the American church or dismissed and spiritualized as only applying to demons because of the false Christianity they've created, the false God of love only they've created. Because they have no hatred for evil, they hate these psalms. Now let me give you some guidelines for praying imprecations. I have four of them for you. The first is this. Imprecation is a tool to be used regarding those involved in evil and injustice. Imprecation is a tool to be used regarding those involved in evil and injustice. We see great evil, great injustice, that men persist in their evil and injustice, we should pray imprecatorily regarding the evil and injustice that they foment in the land. Secondly, we should not use imprecatory prayers for personal vendetta. We should not use imprecatory prayers for personal vendetta. You're ticked off at someone for doing something to you? Guess what? God might just want you to suffer. And he can use your suffering. When you read the imprecatory psalms, you do not see them being used for personal vendetta. I remember when I was a young Christian, um, and you know, I mistook what um, imprecatory prayer was for my own angst at certain people who were accusing me of something I didn't do. Understand, you can be accused of doing something you didn't do, and God may allow it to stand because he's going to teach you good character in the midst of that, as painful as it is. Understand that. So I was accused of taking drugs while I was in Teen Challenge, and I did not take drugs while I was in Teen Challenge, but I was accused of such. And I remember having personal vendetta in my heart towards the person who accused me of this. So I prayed that he would fall down the staircase and that his bowels would gush out when he hit the bottom. That's personal vendetta. Okay? You don't pray imprecatory prayers for personal vendetta. You pray imprecatory prayers because there's evil being fomented. There's injustice taking place. You pray imprecatory prayers because his name's sake is at stake. Not because your personal reputation is being maligned. Some people try to say, well, Paul um, did that. He did it for personal vendetta. And they point out 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. Turn there. Um, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. It's Paul talking. May the Lord repay him according to his works. Oh, look, there, personal vendetta. He imprecated Alexander the coppersmith because he did him much harm. It wasn't a personal matter. It was much larger than that, and we know it was much larger than that because of what it goes on to say in verse 15. You also must beware of him. For he has greatly resisted our words. 
At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. It was because the gospel was being hindered from being preached by Alexander the coppersmith, not because Paul's personal vendetta of the personal harm he did to him. Understand what I'm saying? Romans chapter 12, verses 19 and 20. Very well-known verse there. What does it say? Romans chapter 12, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 12 says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. It's an Old Testament declaration about loving your enemy. We don't use imprecation for personal vengeance. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 12 from the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 12. It says, let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. We do not imprecate for personal vendetta. So the first is, imprecation is a tool to be used regarding those involved in evil and injustice. Secondly, we should not use imprecatory prayers for personal vendetta. Number three, we should not imprecate the saints of God. Because you have some personal thing or someone has attacked you, you don't imprecate a brother or sister in the Lord. Now you can imprecate the tares. There's those who claim Christ and they do not know Christ and they do not behave like Christian people. They can be imprecated. But brothers and sisters are not to be imprecated. In fact, imprecation is one of the better tools for wicked tares in the midst of God's field. Because remember what Jesus said? If you try to tear them out, they end up harming the whole field. Didn't he? But when the finger of God takes them out, yeah, they're gone. And their evil ceases. And his field is intact. The fourth is this, we do not pray such prayers in a haughty or vengeful spirit, but with a broken heart. That's extremely important. When you see evil for what it is, and you see what an affront it is to the, when you see what an affront it is to God, and you see the damage that it does to your neighbor, your heart is broken inside. You pray such prayers from a broken heart, not from a haughty, vengeful spirit. Understand? Praying imprecatorily should be part of our lives. Look at Psalm 58. I'm almost finished here. Psalm 58. Psalm 58, verse 10. 
It says, The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Look what it says. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. And look what it goes on and says. Verse 11, So that men will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. His judgments point men to himself. His judgment points men to Jesus. Judgment from God is a good thing. I'll tell you, it is the most merciful thing for a nation like ours that is in such abject rebellion against him. The worst thing he could do is to do what the American church wants to do and just let them go on in their evil. His judgment will hopefully waken up some to see their need for Christ. When his judgment hits the land, do you notice how people behave? Remember after 911 fell, the towers fell? For like six weeks, everybody was a Christian. Everybody went back to church. Everybody was praying at the universities where, this is before they had safe spaces. You know, the humanists created them all. No, people actually tried something they were taught when they were little kids. You know, pray, God. It lasted about six weeks and then it all faded in their memory and they all went, all the America, back to their drunken brothels with all their materialism and ease. They all ran back to it. And the little Bible studies and prayer meetings ceased after two months. God's judgment woke them up. And some never went back to that because of that time. Do you understand what I'm saying? The judgment of God is a mercy for men. Look at Psalm 83, verse 9. This was my last passage. Psalm 83, verse 9. It says, Deal with them as with Midian, as with Caesarea. As with... You remember what happened to Caesarea, right? (laughs) As with Yabin at the brook Kishon, who perished at Endor, who became his refuse on the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb, Yes, all their princes like Zeba and Zaluma, who said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind. As the fire burns the woods and as the flame sets the mountains on fire, so pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. Fill their faces with shame. And then look what he says that they may seek your name, O Lord. The judgment of God points men to Him, points men to His Son. The Holy Spirit convicts men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We are to talk about the Oh, that guy talked about hell. Do you ever notice? You know, they get some Christian on, He said hell. He said something about hell and all the Christians. Oh, we would never say anything about hell. We wouldn't. There's a good gospel preaching going on in Philadelphia one time with Michael Markavage and that crew. 
Linda Beckman, they were looking at 40-some years in prison because they declared the gospel to a pack of sodomites. 40-some years in prison for declaring the gospel. And I remember Bill O'Reilly questioning their lawyer. And he said, well, um, they said that they were talking to him about hell. Bill O'Reilly's a little worked up about that. Oh, he talked about hell. And I remember the Christian lawyer, he's like, well, you know, he's mealy-mouthing around. It's part of the message! Just say it! You're going to hell! I don't lead with that when I'm out preaching. But it is part of the message, is it not? You are in danger of hell. You will spend eternity in the lake of fire. We have a duty as watchmen to warn them of that, do we not? And yet all of Christianity, oh, God wouldn't judge. When he judges through his weather storms, Floods, famines, what do all the Christians do? They can't line up deep enough to say, God would never do that. That wasn't God. Earthquake destroys the biggest porn area producing location. The epicenter of the earthquake was there. In Kenwood, I believe it was called, California. All the Christians lie out, oh, that couldn't be God. God wouldn't do God's a God of mercy. He's a God of love. The porn kings themselves said, we know it's God. Do you know what kind of filth and evil we proliferate here? We all view it as the finger of God. And here's the Christian church giving them a pass. Oh no, it's not God. Here's their opportunity to repent, to see His judgment, to see that they're under it. And here's the church. They try to tell them everything's good, everything's soft. Pet your little wool. It's all okay. It appears loving to your average dope. It's not loving. It's evil. We have a duty to let men know the whole counsel of God's Word, and it includes His judgment. All men are under His righteous judgment outside of Christ. All men need to turn from their evil and believe in Jesus Christ, or they will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Let's stand up. We'll close in a word of prayer.